0: This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, tablet editor at large, Liel Lebowitz. Hello to you. And tablet deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hi. This week on the show, returning Gentile of the Week, comedian, podcaster, Fake the Nation host, Nagin Farsad. And our Jew of the Week is Michael Uslan, He's the executive producer of all the Batman movies, and he's the first college professor of comic book studies. I don't know that we can ever prove that. I think somebody has professed comic books before, but we're happy to give him that for today and for the purposes of this extremely good interview. Before we get to all that good stuff, here we are. It's July. The kids are away at camp. That's supposed to make our lives easier. May I tell you, about the mail I've been getting, Liel and Stephanie? You may, and then I will tell you about the mail I have not been getting. Go ahead. Okay. And by mail, I mean electronic mail, not real mail, because I believe that only snail mail is real mail. Your kid's camp has electronic mail options? What is this, the 21st century? I meant the mail from the camp director, but since you asked, they do have an option, which I loathe, but which my wife avails herself of, of typing a letter into a portal and they print it out and deliver it to the kids.
1: This exists, right? It's literally a telegram.
0: Literally a telegram because you have to
2: pay for it. You have to buy a <laughs> camp stamp because email obviously costs money.
1: And someone finds you being like, excuse me, is there a Rebecca Oppenheimer here? No, they do. They have like they hand out <laughs> the these, Pony like, folded- Express. The Pony. <laughs>
0: The Puni Baj Express, yeah. So Sid does avail herself of that portal every night. I write letters in the mail, though fewer as each year goes on. But the mail I'm talking about is from the camp director, whom we will call Rabbi Shlomo, though that's not his name. And the mail is... We've been COVID smacked. As you know, COVID running rampant throughout our camp. And this, of course, is backed up by an article from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, which says COVID running rampant through lots of Jewish summer camps. Um, The precautions weren't as tight this summer. They're letting the counselors have days off heaven forfend. There are, you know, midnight runs by the staff to bars here and there. I I don't know. The point is the lockdown wasn't, by intention was not as locked down. And all of a sudden everybody has COVID and they're putting them in little mini pods and they're having special COVID housing. And my camp, my daughter's camp is not the only one to have put out a request for extra nurses because they don't have enough nursing staff. But here's the thing. The thing is, I think the kids are fine and I don't really care. I see you and I raise you. I think this is war on
2: camp. I think this this kind of, by now, at this point in the game, absolutely hysterical overreaction that eats into camp. Because I know a lot of camps in which a huge amount of kids were actually sent home mid kind of like week two of the festivities. I've received a lot of reports in this. To, to do this, to the one corner of of Jewish communal life that remained the sort of robust driver of just fun and joy and attachment
0: is is amazing. I want to be clear that at my daughter's camp, which may or may not be run by the conservative movement and may or may not be in Western New England, they're not sending kids home. They're basically keeping them. They're having lots of fun activities. They're funneling them back. They're actually handling it entirely appropriately, which is they're letting camp go on. And by the way, the fact that COVID is there and has spread shows that they were being not exceedingly lockdowny about conditions. They were actually allowing for a pretty normal camp experience, probably knowing that something like this was going to happen and being somewhat okay with it. So I want to be clear, there are lots of different reactions and I am thrilled with the fact, nobody's sending my daughter home. To my knowledge, she hasn't had COVID, but she's never had COVID, which means she'll get COVID this summer. And that's okay because she's in an age group that is exceedingly low risk. We're talking about kids who are eight to 16 and the risk is very low and I'm glad that to the extent Jewish summer camps are carrying on. God bless you. Kol HaKavod. You're doing the Lord's work. And, you know, I that's going to be this summer. It's going to be the summer of COVID and color wars. So now I have a bit of rabbinic advice to seek from you. Yes. Oh,
2: corduroy rav, oh, father of many. Five that I know of. My question for you is this. So you had a, a hypothetical uh, child, right? This is not Perhaps a, a, a daughter. Real- A real world scenario. Let's make her a daughter just because, you know. Let's make her a daughter. It's it's 2022. Might she be a Mets fan? Is she a Mets fan, this daughter? Let's say she likes baseball. Let's call her, I don't know, Millie. Now, let's say Millie goes to camp, right? Let's say Millie goes to camp equipped with 736 (laughs) pre-stamped envelopes with her home address already written on it, literally requiring said hypothetical child who totally doesn't exist in the real world to only write three lines and then put the damn thing in the mail and, and make her
0: uh, equally hypothetical parents very, very happy. Now, let's assume— This presumes that unlike all other people in her age cohort, she actually has handwriting. She knows how to write form letters. Well, she has hands and a <laughs> pen.
2: Therefore, she should know how to do this. And she knows how to write. I mean, I've seen this. I, I mean, I assume that this hypothetical child knows how to write. Now, let's assume that it's three weeks in. Let's assume that the number of uh, letters that her parents received Let's say it's one. There are two schools of thought: Bet Hillel and Bet Shammai. Right? Bet Shammai says, "Well, this is a child uh, who clearly does not miss her parents at all, and the parents should should be devastated. They should see it as a as a slight." And and Bet Hillel says, "No, thou shalt rejoice because this is a child who had found joy and happiness and a sense of self and purpose among her Jewish peers in Jewish camp." Rabeno Oppenheimer, father of of, of many. Where do you stand on this hypothetical issue that has nothing to do with my actual real life?
1: So wait, this is, should you be upset if your kid doesn't write you from camp?
0: Or delighted? I'm going to go with B, delighted. However, that only goes so far. If this child gets into college someday and you let her go and you pay her tuition, she has to write home at least once a month. That is my real, thus speaketh the Roth. So the principle of your
2: spouse, and she's actually pretty brilliant, is that the volume of letters Stands in direct correlation to the tuition. Yes, to the the cost, to the parents. Oh, that's 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 amazing. So in other words, if we're looking at a few thousand dollars for a few weeks, Uh, one letter, fine. If we're looking at, you know, two hundred thousand for four years. That's right. I need at least a dozen.
1: Here's all I can offer. I was a little excited when Edith got separation anxiety for me. (laughs) 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 Like, it feels a little nice to leave a baby's room and have them cry out. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. Who's your mama? She misses me. She's obsessed with me. So I can see I can see that this gets dicey. I actually recently came across a trove of Ben Cohen's letters from camp that he sent to his relatives. And I have to say, the dish from camp was very boring. It was like, we're in a soccer tourney this weekend. I think we're going to win. I got cast in the play. Or it's like, we weren't friends and now we are. I feel like that's what all my letters are.
2: And in a bit of divine justice, um, do you know how many letters from home I've written throughout my entire summer camp career. I'm going to
0: go with zero. Uh, precisely zero letters. Day crew, send us your thoughts on two topics this week, COVID and summer camps, and what kind of mail do you want, expect, or require from your children if and when you send them away? That's my other question for you. What type of letter do you actually write a child? Do you try to be
2: witty? I mean, this is my first experience of writing.
0: Can I tell you? I have an answer to that. You send them stuff that passes for them in their age group appropriately as fun gossip. What's happening around the neighborhood? You know, you throw in a little, something a little bit dishy about some adult that you know they don't like and you don't like and they know that you don't like the adult. Stupid it's, Mrs. It's
2: a, Goldberg is drunk yeah, on the porch again.
0: Yeah, you know, so-and-so <laughs> gave, well, you should have heard so-and-so's Devar Torah at shul, another 20 minute stem winder. <laughs> Gin would be the ruin of Mr. Cohen. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a chance to actually acculturate them to what a dishy, fun adult letter is. Dear Elizabeth, you know who's
2: having another affair? <laughs> <laughs> news of
3: the
0: Jews. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. Uh-huh. <laughs> news of the Jews. Leo, what's the News of the Jews this
2: week? I have an idea, inspired, ripped from the headlines, for what will be one of the greatest television shows of all time. This combines two things that I love dearly, uh, baking and Nazis. This is based on a recent discovery on a
0: British genealogy show that our beloved Matt Lucas, host of The Great British Bake Off. Also one of the key players in Bridesmaids, I might say. He had a important career before Bake Off, but go ahead. Get this. In an episode
2: of a celebrity genealogy show, which in of itself is unbelievable genre of television that aired June 16, Lucas learned that Werner Goldschmidt, his grandmother's first cousin, had rented a room from Anne Frank's family and lived with them in their Amsterdam apartment. Now, could you imagine how amazing the great Anne Frank Bake Off show would be? It's like, I'm sorry, by the end of today, uh, one of you will go on to the next stage and the other will have to leave this ethic. Uh, Mr. Frank, your milfoil was a little too dry for my taste and now...
0: I love the conceit that Matt Lucas is from a long line of, of, of bake-off people, right? I mean, he's not even <laughs> a baker. He's just a schmo who they have making clever comments. But in Liel's mind, the Lucas Goldschmidt clan has been baking off since pre-war Europe. It's like the Gabay. Of the baking show, He's the person doing
2: this. By the way, so so you think like Werner Goldschmidt, when the war starts, do you think is
1: like, so guys, um, mind, if I, mind if I stick around for a little bit? I feel like there was a point at which renting a room from the Franks went from being like a business thing with the border to like actually being a euphemism for like hiding from the Nazis. <laughs> By the way,
2: can you imagine if we had Zillow back in the early 40s? <laughs> A, a lovely pre-war attic. Barely pre-war, but, you know, still counts. <laughs> Room enough for 17. To- <laughs> the Zestimate is
1: not great. <laughs> in a good Nazi-free area, the school district, the camp district is great.
2: Does the attic still exist, by the way? Yes, of course it exists. Isn't
1: that where you go in the Anne Frank house?
2: Isn't that where I took shrooms and went to visit and then got freaked out? No, no, no.
1: Yeah, you go, you go up to the attic.
0: Yes, that is exactly what happened. Wait, the Anne Frank House is actually the Anne Frank House? Yeah. How
1: many mushrooms were you on in Amsterdam?
0: So many. No, honestly, I thought it was a museum to Anne Frank that-, <laughs> <It's> that so- <laughs> Mark's like, that, wait, <laughs> Anne Frank was real? I thought it was just Natalie Portman on Broadway. <laughs> I knew she was real, but it, the Anne Frank House is so close to the Van Gogh Museum and the Rijksmuseum. Museum. It's not that
1: close. It's just the mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> wait. Wait, hold on. The the Holocaust happened? <laughs> I thought it was just a movie. No, I the thought the it was just a museum. Guy. I thought, look,
0: <laughs> look, there are there are civil rights museums that aren't actually Martin Luther King's house. I thought that nearby they did a museum to Anne Frank that had a like a little installation that was like this is what the attic's actually like i didn't think it was the actual house
1: look we know you haven't read the diary of anne frank so maybe nope. this is all coming from your your anne frank blind spot um the blind spot actually is the attic because if there wasn't if there was, if, the, if you couldn't get into the attic today it wouldn't have been such a drama when the fault in our stars characters kissed in the end, Frank house in the movie.
0: My God, so much of culture is just making sense to me now. So the house, that's the house. I've been in the, holy cow, I've been in the house.
1: So speaking of Jewish teen milestones, a little bit more positively, this is dark. So psyched for um, the segue.
0: It's gonna be a rocking segue.
1: <laughs> Netflix is bringing us not one, but two bar mitzvah based productions. I'm not quite sure why, but I think Hollywood has realized that actually like A 13 year old at this very, very, very vulnerable point in their life being put on stage in front of every single person they know that the bar mitzvah is actually is hella funny, is a great narrative device. And so we're getting two things. We're getting 13 The Musical, which is an adaptation of the Broadway musical. And we're also getting You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah, which is a YA novel that Adam Sandler is adapting and Idina Menzel is going to star in. So we have to be on the lookout for just like a lot of bar bot mitzvah content coming our way.
2: What what other Jewish rites of passage would make for great Netflix fodder? Jackie Chan in Bedecken, <laughs> the martial <laughs> arts show.
0: No, no, no. Obviously, obviously the show we need is Upsherin, is three-year-olds getting their first haircut. The Wu-Tang Clan in Upsherin. <laughs> this is made to order. You just get a bunch of three-year-olds. You put them in a room with a guy with shears and you give them pay us and just see who screams, who cries, you give them little treats afterward. You just you just parade them through and laugh at them. This is actually low budget. It's a great reality, like hairdressing reality show.
1: Wait. I have a different option, which is the Richard Linklater, which is where you show a kid every day oh. of the first three years of his life until Jewish law says that he could cut his hair. And so we slowly see the hair getting longer, 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 longer.
0: I'm in a yes and you. I think that's, <laughs> I think the Linklater option is brilliant, but actually it's 25 years in the life of an Orthodox boy. He's born. On day eight, there's the bris. At age three, there's the upsharin. There's bar mitzvah. There's him going to yeshiva, masifta, yeshiva, Kolal, him wanting a woman, but he goes into the freezer where you're not allowed to date for the first year of Kolal because you have to focus on your studies. There's the matchmaking. He finally gets a wife. There's wedding. And it ends with his son's bris. It's like 24 years from bris to bris. Everyone played by Ethan Hawke. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) He's the Rosh Yeshiva. Someone get linked later on the phone. We have his next (laughs) picture for him. Am I wrong that there's even better news of the Jews from the world of showbiz this week?
1: So Funny Girl is on Broadway. It is the vehicle that originally propelled Barbara Streisand to fame um, in the original film. It also brought us the story of real-life comedian and actress Fanny Bryce. There's some casting news, which is that Beanie Feldstein, who was originally playing Fanny Bryce, is going to be replaced this fall by Leah Michelle. There's a lot of internet drama over that. More important is that friend of the show, one of our favorite people ever, Tova Feldshuh is taking over the role of Mrs. Bryce, Fanny Bryce's mother. I cannot wait to go see her. It's actually perfect because Mrs. Bryce famously did not want Fanny Bryce to go into showbiz. Her daughter really wanted to go in, and as we've talked to Tova about in this amazing memoir she wrote, Lilyville, she told her mother she wanted to go to Juilliard, and her mom says, "You're not going to a trade school," and so. Tova Feldschuh not only has played like the most amazing Jewish icons from like Dr. Ruth to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and to Golda
0: Meir, but also lived, lived through this shit.
1: She actually understands so much about like being a Jewish mother, having a Jewish mother, like it's going to be so perfect. And so everyone stop paying attention to Leah Michelle Beanie Feldstein drama. Start paying attention to Tova Feldschuh as Mrs. Bryce. I'm so excited.
0: Road trip to Midtown to Times Square. Tova Feldschuh is Anne Frank We couldn't be happier to welcome back for the second or third or fourth or ninth time Gentile of the Week, Nagin Farsad. She's an Iranian, American comedian, writer, actor, and director. She hosts the podcast Fake the Nation. She's also on Adult Swim on TV and on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And also this week on Unorthodox.
4: After the show, uh, someone tweeted at me, at Nagin Farsad is clearly the Jewish nerd on the panel. And... Um, I'm actually an Iranian-American Muslim, like all of you. So to be called a Jewish nerd, it felt like an upgrade. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, oh my God, thank you. Um, but actually, I'm I'm the Muslim nerd on the panel. Uh, to which they responded, I'm sorry, but you're clearly a Jewy McJew
1: face. Nikki Farsad, welcome back to the show.
0: And now that you're here this time, I mean, as we understand from the bit of comedy we just heard. Great. You are, you're apparently Jewish now. We thought we were having you on as a Gentile of the Week. One of yes. us. <laughs> the anti-Semites, arbiters of all things Jewish, have actually discovered your Israelite, Semitic, your truth. How has it been being a public Jew? Are you is it easier, <laughs> harder than being Muslim? Easier? Like what, I mean, now now
2: that you own the banks in the media, has life changed uh, at all for you? Or are you?
0: Uh, you
4: know, you know when I walk in the streets of Crown Heights, the Lubovich is that. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: which is classic Jewish. Like they, most right. Jews don't know the Hasidic courts by name. The, the, the Lebowichers, yeah.
4: <laughs> they will stop me and be like. Are you Jewish? You know, like, because they want to get me to be more Jewish or whatever. And I'm like, no, um, but thanks again. I'm flattered. Uh, So there's very close. It's very close. Um, Iran is is but a hop, skip and a jump away. (laughs) Um, I'm sure some of our ancestors have boned. (laughs) So there you go.
2: I think they would enjoy hearing. I don't know if we ever talked about this. We might have. So forgive me, but. There's the saying in this country that's always sort of troubled me. Is like the the Judeo Christian tradition. Actually, theologically, these two religions have almost nothing in common, whereas Judaism and Islam actually have a lot in common.
4: Oh, are they? They're like besties. Tell no, me, but, uh, t- tell me your yeah more expert opinion on that. I don't really, I can't really speak to that.
2: Let's start with daily prayers. You guys perfected it. You know. Hold we- on,
4: sorry. I'm dealing. I'm with a toddler walking into. Right, I'm meeting Darobe Okay, sorry. There's just okay. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Okay, Khodafes. Mercy, Khoshkel.
1: Okay. Sorry. Can we keep that in? Because that is <laughs> that the coolest thing ever. Super
0: adorable. <laughs> oh my, it's been too long since we've had Farsi toddler talk. Was it toddler Farsi?
4: <laughs> How, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I realized one thing about my Farsi when I started speaking to her, you know, when she was born, that my Farsi is essentially child's Farsi because it's not like <laughs> I ever had to like, do a p- term paper in Farsi, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. So, and it's not like me and my parents ever talk about philosophy or anything like that. We're just, you know, it's mostly like, where are we going to have dinner? What are we eating? More stuff about
1: food, other food questions. Past this, past that. Past
4: that, exactly. Um. But yeah, so my, my, so I think once she was born, I was like, I already naturally speak a child like Farsi. I don't need to dumb this down any further. So uh, let's, make, let's make this happen. So yeah, so she's a nice bilingual little uh, baby, and
0: what is your your husband? Is he a Brit?
4: No, he just like happens to have the last name of a very famous uh, soccer king dynasty, but uh, he is um his last name is Tottenham. So, uh, yeah. Ooh, that's oh, that's why I thought he was a
0: Brit. I to- that's, yeah, that's why, why I, thought I thought he was
4: a Brit. <laughs> no, he's just an American dude. Yeah, <laughs> well, he just happens that's why
0: to have I this, thought like- he was a Yid. So you guys are confusing us even more. In England, the Jews all take names like Tottenham. You know, it's like right. Lord. that's the
1: team. That's like they right. call them the Yids. Yeah. yeah. So were you disappointed
2: in like the fourth or fifth date when you discovered them? Like, actually, I'm from Cleveland. Like, I'm I'm not. <laughs> I'm not from Downton Abbey.
4: Well, we also we also learned that we were born in this I, I grew up in in Southern California, but we learned that we were born in the same hospital in New Haven. So it was meant to be. Nagin, you know? were
0: you both born in Yale New Haven Hospital? We were. <laughs> that is the, we were. the birthplace of not only President George W. Bush, whose father, the first President Bush, was an undergrad when he was born. But also of all five of the Oppenheimer children, of my children, were all Shut born your
4: there. face. Um, yeah. No, my face is going to
0: stay open because <laughs> it is the truth. As <laughs> as my 13-year-old would say, facts. Do your kids say that? Leo, do your kids say facts? No, they don't believe in facts. Facts, yeah. Facts, that is a very prestigious elite hospital to be born in. And no wonder that you have such a great child if both
1: parents... We're, we're <laughs> born <laughs> in this world. So, Migue, yes, sorry, we're
4: we got so off track. No, so well, sorry. yeah.
1: Besides bageling you and your husband and trying to make you both Jewish, what else is? going on with you?
4: Gosh, folks, I'll do a little bit of bragging. You know, the way the most uh, the way most um, Iranian American Muslim comedians who are um, also considered Jewish do. I am in I'm a voice in in an animated show called Bird Girl. So you can catch that. Um, it on Adult Swim on Sundays or on HBO Max, uh, where you can do all of your streaming of me. I, I am a mind taker, which is just my subtle way of imposing Sharia law in the animated universe. <laughs> oh, absolutely! <laughs> so that's happening now. And the, and the season is about to wrap up. Um, it's, a, it's season two of that show. It's really, really fun and funny. Um, It's especially fun and funny if you're an 18 to 24 year old boy boy, man. <laughs> um, and there's a movie coming out that I'm in called Not OK. It's going to come out on Hulu at the end of the month. And I play a very, um, you know, um, e- e- ethnically ambiguous magazine editor. So uh, <laughs> wait, that's amazing. I question.
0: <laughs> having having just worked my way through all of Parks and Rec for the second time where they yes. end about halfway through, they start making jokes about Rashida Jones's ethnic Ambiguity, which is yeah. very funny. Like Amy Poehler will say, oh, you beautiful, ethnically ambiguous yeah. 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 best yeah. friend. And they never say she's half black. It's just ethnically. Do you, as somebody who, yeah, can probably play everything under the sun ethnically? Yes do they talk about you being, I mean, do they give your yes. character ethnicity in the show or is the joke that we can't tell what you are?
4: Right. I, it's so interesting because I, um, I, inter- I just, I shot an episode of Bull like a few, a couple months ago and that's like that CBS show about a guy who knows a lot about the court system or something. And, <laughs> no, it's a really fun show. Super, you really did no, your work charming. before
0: right. your character, you did your research on that character before you shot that episode. No, right? As I
4: always say, I was like, what is the one line for this show? But anyway. No, he's like, he's like, you know, a psychologist. He knows a lot anyway. And it's, it's very charming, especially if you like crime procedural. So I saw I was in a, I was in an episode of this. And, and when I auditioned for the part, the part had a name, like a, like a regular name. But then when I got the part, I think they changed the name to be more ethnic, like some kind of, you know, this could be anyone from the Middle East kind of last name. And I was like, oh, that's intriguing. So that has happened to me. And I, I remember I did when they rebooted Murphy Brown, they did the same thing. They changed the name. I was I. Had a part there. They changed the name, and uh, and I was like, okay, like that's cool. They're being, you know, I played Fatima instead of the original like Amy or whatever, Um, and that's awesome. Uh, your your name is I,
2: now Esther. Random security check. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Do you yeah, like that? Uh, Does it make? Show. Did that please you when you they made you Fatima? Well, because of course, lots of Iranian Americans are named Amy, Amy. right? <laughs> 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 Too.
4: I mean, right, right. I mean, I think it's interesting because there's like it's also a generational thing. I think like when my sort of my brother's 13 years older than me and and so he's a little part of a slightly set generation than I am. And I think in his generation a lot of Iranians would like come here and be like my name is Michael or whatever. And mm-hmm. so that I think was a, a trend in that age group. In my age group I think it's uh, was we were kind of growing out of that where you were like no my name is Nagin. it's two syllables but for whatever reason it makes people's minds melt oh, so yeah. let's just go through the awkward several weeks that it'll take for you to say Nagin, you know and then there were still some people that were like no just call me Natalie or whatever and like that I definitely <laughs> did see that but um but I was one of the stalwarts of like no just say my name it'll be fine uh and so I I I think the nice thing about people changing the name is that it just it just acclimates the listener's ears to other types of names. Right. You know, because Fatima is as much Jennifer in the Middle East as Jennifer is in the United States. So it's like let them hear that name, um, and and learn it and because it's gonna be it we're in a global community now, like we all prefer these
1: globalists.
4: St- <laughs> We're all globalist cucks or whatever the right. terminology is. So let us hear all of these names. It's just like in our earballs
0: I'm actually a globalist cuck rhino, theme, <laughs> And I'd like you to get, I'd like you to honor my truth. Um on behalf of the ruthless cosmopolitan. Yes, honor my truth, please. Liel and Stephanie will remember I was in um LA doing a thing at um, at a big synagogue in LA and I sent them a text of a, of a a picture of a plaque on the wall. Some family had given big, big, big money um, and this was a, a synagogue with a lot of Persians, right? And yeah. it was um, I'm trying to remember, it was you know, in, it was like the parents both had Iranian names, you know, Mr. and Mrs. you know, Farsad or whatever. Right. Give, give this in honor of their children Ashton and Ashley yeah. Farsad. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, See,
4: I'm surprised uh, at that. I mean, yeah. Literally,
0: Ashton and Ashley. I mean, this is America, right?
4: I mean, first of all, there's a couple of things about that story that I think are inaccurate. One is it wouldn't be Mr. and Mrs. Farsad, it would be Dr. and Mrs. Thank you, (laughs) Dr. Farsad. Or just
2: Dr. Farsad. Doctors Farsad.
4: But yeah, I mean, I think that's the other the the other weird thing is is that it 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 also kind of depends on what part of the country. Like, I think if you're kind of like a New York Iranian American, there's not that many of us here. You know, you're more likely, and also I don't know, you're more you know, you don't need to like pr- prove yourself. And why right. would you do Ashton? I mean, it just seems, seems weird to me, and especially in Los Angeles where there are tons of Iranians, like no one's gonna you know, be like, oh, my God, what is the name Mahnaz? You know what, what? I mean? They're, they're going to get it, you know?
0: I think they were just big fans of that 70s show. <laughs> At the end of the day, <laughs> you know, you dance with the Mila one Ashton.
4: By the way, there's an article that came out in the Times yesterday, and I'll, I'll go ahead and regale you with the one paragraph that I read from it, <laughs> that um, the uh, the children, the second generation Children of immigrants actually are like huge economic drivers in the United States because so for so people immigrants who come here freshly do end up utilizing some resources from the state, but their children end up being huge Um, contributors to like the tax base and stuff like that uh, because of the doctors um, and lawyers and engineers and whatever. And and comedians and actors. So so my anchor babies. (laughs) And just like the, you know, the rash of comedians. Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) Uh, Speaking of comedy, I have a question. We often hear authors of, you know, literary fiction talk about their they're always asked about their process. Well, I get up in the morning. I have my chamomile tea. I, you know, feed my cats. And Mm. then I sit back. Then, you know, I read a a line of Jane Austen to get my juices flowing. (laughs) Yes, indeed. I would say
4: chow, sir. Go ahead.
0: When you have a big uh, if you have a special coming up or a show or something and Mm. you you need more material, time for some fresh material. What is your process? How do you get into your headspace?
4: Oh god. First of all, comedians constantly have to write material. And um, and so and and even like now I'm sort of I'm been touring this hour of stand-up that you know may or may not turn into whatever it turns into. And I'm so I'm not done with it. Like I still have to work on it. I still have to like live with it and think about it and perfect it. And even now, I'm just like, oh no, this, I can't, I I, ha- I have to stop doing this material. I need to do new material. So like, I'm just constantly taking notes and I'm constantly up. I mean, tr- you know, trying out new bits. It's a, it's a kind of ongoing process of which you are never free. You know what I mean? <laughs> Doesn't um, that
2: drive you? I-, I think about this so often. Doesn't mm-hmm. that drive you insane? Because like, here you are, you've written this joke. It's the greatest fucking joke ever. And you tell it and it's amazing and it kills. And that's like three months later. It's like, okay, I can never, ever use this again.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, (laughs) luckily, it's more like a, you know, you get a good year or two years, depending on when how you're you're taping your specials or albums or whatever. But yeah, like it sucks because you can't. Sometimes people do, fans do want to hear an old joke and it makes them feel good. But like generally, it's not like your bands get to perform old material all the time. But comedians just are, you know, have to constantly generate and It sucks. I remember the thing about that I hated the most about school is that I always felt like I had a paper due, and <laughs> and I went and I went and I, expe- I extended that feeling for like two yeah. master's you,
2: degrees worth. You made, right? you made great life choices then.
4: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so uh, degrees I don't use. And so I, um, I, I had that feeling for so long. And I remember when I was finally done with grad school, I was like, I am never going back to that feeling except for this lifelong feeling that I now have doing stand up where so I just wait, always have homework. Are
1: your stress dreams about school or are they like being up on stage. Like, or do you have the regular, like, I haven't studied for the test. I yeah, haven't.
4: I mostly still have my stress dreams about school just because I'm such a good, like, children of immigrants. Um, and, like, my, they're all, like, about performing and get it, do, getting an A on a test or whatever. Like, I didn't show up to class. And, oh, my God. And all that. I, it, th- those are still my stress dreams.
0: Do you ever have the one where you didn't show up to class all semester? Yeah, you, like, don't even know finals? where the—
1: the yes, and I have to
4: do a test or like I have yes. to like learn all of geometry or something like in a night. <laughs> Does it merge oh with the God. dream where
1: your
0: teeth are falling out?
1: You
4: know what? I have not had a merger of those, but I do have the teeth falling out dreams too, which are so stressful.
1: So where can our listeners, like where can we see this this hour of comedy that's going to get stale very quickly and you're going to have to redo completely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
4: so hopefully we'll, I'll be announcing some more dates in the fall. Um, So watch out for that. And also I'm doing the way, Wait, Don't Tell Me Stale stand up tour. <gasps> and we just did our like kickoff weekend, which is funny because the kickoff weekend is followed by a bunch of no weekends. Um uh, but we're starting back up again September, October, November, December. There's going to be so many opportunities to see me and all the wait wait don't tell me comedians doing their native stand up um, in in various cities around the country. They'll be in Dallas and Austin and St. Louis and uh, Minneapolis and you know, just all of the cities that you can name. Those are the cities that the, the way, wait, wait, don't tell me um stand-up comedy tour will be in. Uh and then of course, you know, you can you can catch me at odd and um unknown times doing the way don't tell me show.
1: Amazing. Naginfarsad.com. That is where I go to get all my Farsad information. And that's where our listeners should go too right?
4: Absolutely. Naginfarsad.com. Subscribe to Fake the Nation, the podcast, so you can hear me kvetch about the news
1: every week with people like the very hosts of the Unorthodox podcast. Amazing. And don't think we did notice you using the word fetch, which is okay because you are, you know, you have been spotted <laughs> as a, a, a public Jew. I'm a
4: New Yorker.
1: I feel like I'm grandfathered into using that. To- ter- no, it's 100% true. 100% you it's true. are. It's true. You're like over there schwitzing you in your apartment. Valid proof of residence.
2: Like you could use whatever Yiddish word you want.
1: Thank you. Thank you. I feel seen. Nagin, it is so great to catch up with you. You are our favorite comedian. Always great to see you and see you the amazing things you're up to.
4: Love seeing you guys. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated best play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by The New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's Spring Season of Jewish Culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Tell me, tell me, in
3: the day or the night,
0: would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox, just going to do one letter this week. Uh, it's it's taking me to the woodshed. Our friend Morty writes, hey, Mark, it's actually a pretty big deal if you lose your ketuba. You should call your LOR, local Orthodox rabbi. you got to write a whole other document attesting to the first one or something like that. Whatever. It's a big deal. Go do it. A guten Shabbos, Morty. I feel like what Morty's insinuating kind of gently, he doesn't want to say it, is that if we've lost our ketubah, our marriage is null and void. Like, why else could it be a big deal? I think he's saying Sid and I are not married and that our five children come From a broken home (laughs) Our our momzers (laughs) Momzerum Morty is throwing down The gauntlet Okay I don't think it's Lost lost I think it's in a closet Somewhere We didn't throw it out It's not lost It's lost
2: It's a word document That probably Some kid recycled it And like drew On the other side of it
1: (laughs) It's in that filing cabinet Right behind you
0: (laughs) Totally is Does this mean I can give Sid a call And be like Hey what's up Oh, my God.
1: Josh, Josh, that was you. You went very quickly there. (laughs) Right. So how long have you been waiting for that one?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So this will surprise you not at all to know that between the ages of eight and say, I don't know, 36, I walked around with uh, the Batman logo pin. On my jacket. You had the bat shaved into your head, Leo. Let's not lie. I think right after the first movie came out, I actually believe I did that. Yes. Which is to say, big, big nerd, big comic book nerd, big Batman nerd. Which is why when we heard that there is a gentleman called Michael Uslan, who is the originator and executive director of every single Batman movie ever and that he is the author of an amazing new book and also the first person ever in the history, according to him, to teach an accredited course in comic books in a university, and also this amazing raconteur, and just an amazing person who helped bring us Batman. Well, I got on the phone and I was schooled by this gentleman, Papa Batman, Michael Uslan. Have a listen. Hello, thank you so much for being our guest. It is great to be here. So I'm, I'm jumping right in. You're also uh, the author of another amazing memoir that details your, your adventure from, from a few years back. But I want to take you back to, to this beginning, being a kid who, like myself, found himself absolutely obsessed with comic books. Oh
3: yeah, you're talking to one of the early total comic book geeks. And I wear that like my red badge of courage. My mom said I learned to read from comics before I was four years old. I went to the first Comic-Con ever held on the planet Earth. Uh, 200 of us showed up at the first Comic-Con, 197 guys and three girls. And um, because when you read comics when I was growing up, which was the 50s, 60s into the 70s, if you were above the age of 12, you were considered some sort of sociopath. Because everybody on the adult level had bought into Dr. Wortham's book, Seduction of the Innocent, that claimed comic books were the sole cause of the rise of juvenile delinquency in America after World War II. Most of my friends, almost all my friends, were not allowed to bring comic books into the house, forbidden to read them. It was subversive. By the time I graduated high school, I had over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936, that my collection first of all yeah i bought them from the candy stores and the drug stores and later 7-elevens they were 10 cents a piece then they went up to an appalling 12 cents a piece and the bulk of my collection though came from a flea market near my house they had a backdate magazine stand and every friday night this guy would come in with box after box after box on his shoulders and dump out old old comic books onto a card table because he knew they were so old that they had no value. So he sold them for five cents a piece instead of 10 or 12 cents. Through that, that's how I amassed my gigantic collection and found, oh, a couple of little items like Superman 2, Archie 1, Captain Marvel Jr. 1, Plastic Man 1, Police Comics 1, Mad 1. I filled out my entire atlas, collection of Marvel from that era, of every obscure title you can imagine, and just built it out of that.
2: Uh, of course, to, to those uh, who are not familiar with with the uh those are, are not only cultural touchstones, but uh, are worth quite, quite a bit of money these days. They are. I'm happy to tell you guys that
3: I have, as of today, I've donated 45,000 comic books from my collection to the Lilly Library at Indiana University, which is its rare book library, and I got to see on display, on a special display, they had a Gutenberg Bible, and next to it, Batman number one. That was a victory for me. They had a Gilbert Stewart portrait of George Washington, and a standee six feet tall of Michael Keaton as Batman. So, you know, life just doesn't get better than that.
2: So let's talk uh, about the the Cape Crusader. What is it as as a kid that attracts you particularly to, to this superhero?
3: I'm the boy who loved Batman the same way we are all the boy who loved Batman or the girl who loved Batman. He was human. That's what set him apart from Spidey and Hulk and Superman and so many others. I contend to this day, his greatest superpower is his humanity. And when I was eight years old, seven, eight years old, I did believe in my heart of hearts that I could be this guy. Uh, All I had to do was study hard, work out real hard. My dad had to buy me a cool car, and I was in. Anyone can project themselves, their own personal philosophy, onto this character. And it's the reason why, whether you look at the comic books, the movies, the cartoons, you see iterations of Batman from one extreme to another extreme. The one true Batman is the one you were first introduced to when you were eight or 12 or 16 or whatever. And then you get to explore and see all these other visions. Um, I I got the biggest kick when Dark Knight came out. I turn on Fox News because all the pundits there were claiming the Dark Knight as their right wing guy. Yet you switch to MSNBC and everyone on the left was claiming Batman as their left-wing guy, (laughs) and and everybody's projecting onto onto the character.
2: So allow me now to to do absolutely the same, uh, project in a ridiculous way, and and then have you school me on on this topic a bit. So um, I wrote a book uh, about Stanley, I'm I'm a bit of a Marvel obsessive, in which I sort of made the argument somewhat tangentially that uh, while the Marvel universe was... Someone inherently Jewish, it was a bunch of people with tremendous powers fighting with one another and quibbling uh, over everything as they try to figure out, you know, morality and humanity. Uh, There was something very goyish about Batman, almost like an embodiment of the Protestant work ethic. Someone who was, who always felt to me like he was, you know, basically, you know, a wasp. Am I totally off? First of all, his
3: father's a rich doctor, right? So that works (laughs) Jewish and that works non-Jewish. Bruce Wayne as a schizillionaire, playboy, that doesn't quite fit into the Jewish traditions as they've been handed down from generation to generation. But once again, I'll go back to it, anyone can project themselves onto the character and interpret it any which way they please. There, there are three other elements that are key to Batman being so incredibly successful globally. One is the fact that he has the greatest rogues gallery in history. And it was Stan Lee, my dear mentor and friend, who told me that the greatest superheroes, most long lasting superheroes, are the ones with the greatest supervillains, because ultimately it is the villains who define the hero. And by the way, Joker, inarguably the greatest supervillain ever created. Third element was his origin story, which is so primal. So primal. A kid watching his parents murdered before his eyes in a city street. You know, when I was eight, I never thought of my parents dying until I read the origin of Batman. And it shook me up. It had an emotional impact that has never left me. And it's an origin story that we found transcends not only borders, but cultures all around the world. And the last thing, of course, is the car. Yeah, the car. It's
2: universal. So then you connect with, with Batman in this deep emotional level. And then comes that TV series, which you didn't particularly care for, did you?
3: No, oh, that's an understatement. It was a cold <laughs> January night in 1966. And I knew from Bill and Bob Kane that they had created this guy to be a creature of the night who stalks these truly demented villains in the shadows. So I've been waiting months for this show to come on the air. And now I'm in my basement den. And it comes on the air. I'm so excited. It's in color. And the opening animation kind of looks like Bob Kane, Jerry Robinson artwork. The car is really cool. The sets are extravagant. But man, 20 minutes in, it hits me. Oh, my God, this is a comedy. They are making a joke out of Batman. The whole world is laughing at Batman. And that killed me. So that night in my basement den, I made a vow somehow, someday, I would show the world the true Batman that Bob and Bill created, the, that creature of the night. And I would find a way to eliminate from the collective consciousness of the world culture these three new words that were bombarding me,
2: pal, zap, and wham. The path to that picture uh, is amazing. And uh, that alone is is worth the price of admission in these two amazing memoirs. Uh, how you basically convinced the university to become the the world's first scholar of comic books. First college professor of comic books. And I was an undergrad. But here you are. And there are no superhero movies, as you said. The closest we've come to popular culture representation is the pow zap whams of of this world. And and you have this vision for for a Batman movie that that would set everything straight. How did you get there? And uh, how did you have the audacity to believe it would work? What do you do
3: when... You have a passion, and that passion, you feel it coursing through your veins. It's almost burning. You are influenced, your moral and ethical code growing up is influenced not only by your parents and family, or your teachers or or clergy, but by superheroes. Mine was. And I was always looking for any door open just that much that I could just stick my foot into and use it as an opportunity to advance and pursue my passion. The first opportunity came when I was a junior at Indiana University in Bloomington, and that was because the College of Arts and Sciences had started an experimental curriculum department so that if you had an idea for a college course that had never been taught before, if you could get the backing of a department on campus, you had then had the right to appear before a panel of deans and professors and pitch it. If the dean approved it, then you could teach it on uh, on campus even though I was only 20 years old and I I said there'd never been a course on comic books before comic books are a true american art form as indigenous to this country as jazz and comic book superheroes are indeed our contemporary mythology my theory going in was the ancient gods of Greece Rome and Egypt all still exist except today they wear spandex and capes and the the folklore department backed me on it and that was when the door opened for me I started teaching that course. And from there, so figuring I had absolutely nothing to lose, I picked up the telephone and I called United Press International, which back then was as big a new syndicate as the Associated Press is as today. I got a reporter on the phone and started screaming at the guy. I said, you're not doing your job. This is horrible. Uh, this is outrageous. He said, calm down. What are you talking about? So, what am I talking about? Are you kidding me? I hear there's a course on comic books being taught at Indiana University. Are you telling me as a taxpayer in this state, they're using my money to teach our kids comic books? This has got to be a communist plot to subvert the youth of America, and I slammed down <laughs> the phone. So three days later, this guy investigated and found there was this course. He found me. They did an article. It was picked up by virtually every newspaper. My phone starts ringing. I'm invited on radio and TV talk shows. Every class I teach is filled with television cameras and reporters. And two weeks later, my phone rings. It's this exuberant male voice. Hi, is this Mike Usland? Yeah. Hi, I'm Mike. This is Stan Lee from Marvel Comics in New York City. (laughs) I call this my burning bush moment. I was talking to my god. He said, Mike, everywhere I look, I'm seeing you on TV. I'm reading about you in newspapers. What you're doing is great for the whole comic book industry. How can I help you? That, gentleman was the moment my relationship with Stan Lee changed from him being my idol to my mentor, and ultimately my friend and creative associate. And I was honored to be one of the producers of his memorial at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood, and we gave Stan the greatest send-off possible. Uh, Two hours later, the phone rang, and it was Saul Harrison, vice president of DC Comics, he said, we're listening to you on the radio, reading about you in magazines. You're a very innovative young man. We'd like to fly out to New York City and discuss ways we could work together.
2: Uh, okay. You know, geek dream come true. Yeah, Okay, I'll, I'll fly out to hang with the DC Comics people. Yeah,
3: what the hell? <laughs> they, they offer me a job. And I, I started working for DC in the summers in New York City. And then they put me on retainer when I back, went back to school in Indiana. So, you know, it's foot in the door, foot in the door, foot in the door. And the ultimate story here is that the Batman movie franchise. We're into our 33rd year
2: now. And you have produced every single one of those movies.
3: I was executive producer of every everyone.
2: I don't think it's an exaggeration at all to say that you changed not just the comic book industry, but really the film industry and American culture, because it's hard to imagine. I mean, even for those of us like me who grew up with it, that the whole notion of superhero films, which seems so ubiquitous now that it it is like the foundation of so much of cinematic entertainment was a complete anomaly and aberration. I mean, I remember when Batman came out in 1989, people were saying like, oh, wow, a superhero movie? That's just like a little weird. I don't know. Is that ever going to stick? This achievement. This making the superhero movie so incredibly central to our culture has been equally celebrated by people who said, hey, you know, finally, we have grown our own kind of American mythology that sparkles supreme, as well as vilified by people who said, oh, including famously Martin Scorsese, of course, said, oh, great, thank you for destroying cinema and turning it into like Basically a bunch of explosions and and, and heroes and tights are not serious artwork. I, I take it that you have very strong thoughts uh, about what you had wrought about this kind of era of superhero storytelling.
3: I do. Let's start this discussion with Dick Donner. I love this guy, the director of Superman. And that was breakthrough, but the whole industry. Everybody said Superman was the one and only comic book character who could be made into a blockbuster film. Nothing else had value. And that, that was why it took me 10 years from the time I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics until we got the first movie made. I was turned down by every studio in Hollywood. They said it was the worst idea they ever heard. It took 10 years. And when you go back and look at Superman, which I, I love, the Krypton sequence is done very seriously. The Smallville sequence is done very seriously, but the minute he's in metropolis and is wearing that uniform, it's all kind of tongue-in-cheek. He's saving cats out of trees. Uh, it, it's just becomes light and bouncy, and Ned Beatty and Valerie Perrine and Gene Hackman, it just became, you know, kind of light. I wanted dark and serious. so. That first Batman movie, it not only changed the comic book industry, it absolutely changed Hollywood permanently, and it changed the world culture in terms of its perception of superheroes, supervillains, and comic books. It was so much more than about the box office results, which were groundbreaking at the time. It was about when I'm sitting that July watching the Berlin Wall come down, and I'm transfixed and can't move from CNN. Watching as humanity is pouring forth from this cracked wall into freedom for the first time ever, and coming through the crack is a ten-year-old kid into freedom wearing a Batman cap.
2: Did you understand how deeply Jewish all the creators of this industry you were kind of so enthusiastic about from such a young age were? Was was, it, was there a point in which you kind of like? conscientiously realized, oh, look at all these names. These are all Jews telling outsider stories to kind of mirror their own outsider-ness.
3: Yeah. I mean, Stan told me, you know, one of his primary inspirations for the Hulk was the Golem. So, all right. So let, let me take you back to Indiana University. The moment I walked in the door where I had to pitch my course to the dean and the dean looks down at me over these little pair of half glasses he wore at the end of his nose. And said, so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university? He lets me speak for about two minutes and then cuts me off. He said, Mr. Uselin, I reject your theory. He said, look, I read comic books when I was a little boy. I read every issue of Superman I could get my hands on. But all comic books are, are cheap entertainment for little children. Nothing more, nothing less. I reject your theory. So this was a life-changing moment for me. Because I could have bowed my head, picked up my funny books, and turned around and walked out of the room. But instead, again, figuring I had nothing to lose, I stood my ground. And I said, Dean, may I ask you two questions? He said, ask me anything you want. I said, are you familiar with the story of Moses? And he looked at me like I was nuts. And he said, yeah, so? I said, so, Dean, very, very briefly, could you just summarize the story of Moses for me? And he sat back with his arms folded. He said, Mr. uslin I don't know what game you're playing here but I'll play it with you. He said, the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket, and send him down the river Nile. There he's discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. But when he grows up and learns of his true heritage, he became a great hero to the Hebrew people by, I said, stop, Dean, that was great. Thank you so much. Um, you said before you read Superman comics when you were a kid. Many <laughs> chance do you remember the origin of Superman. He says, of course, the planet Krypton was about to blow up. A scientist and his wife placed their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents who raise him as their own son when he grows up. And then the dean stops. <laughs> <laughs> for What I swear to you was an eternity and says, your course is accredited.'"
2: <laughs> Michael Yuslin, I could go on talking to you for a very long time, but I want to urge everyone listening to us right now to go out there and read Batman's Batman, a memoir from Hollywood land of bilk and money, and watch all of the Batman movies, of course, if you haven't already. Thank you so much for being our guest.
3: This was great. I really enjoyed it. Let's do it again.
0: Mazel tovs. Leo, do you have a mazel tov this week? I have a mazel tov. This
2: is to Israeli singer Yuval Dayan, who is an Orthodox woman and as such Shomer Negia, meaning she does not touch uh, members of the opposite sex. She was at a performance welcoming President Biden to Israel, after which he reached out to shake her hand. And she, in a measure that was both awkward and charming and inspired, basically, did this very polite recoiled and said, I'm really sorry, but this is my faith, which I feel at at a presence like this with the American president observing. I don't know. I think it would have been easy for a lot of other people to say, I'm just I'm just going to do it and just do weird not to. But she's like, hey, man, I'm sorry. This is this is my faith. I'm just not going to do it. And I know you understand. And he did. And I just found it, I don't know, touching and warming. Well, you found it not touching. Not touching at all. I find it touching how not touching it was. Do you think that when President Biden landed in Israel, the person greeting him on the tarmac as soon as Air Force One lands, do you think the first question is like, uh, so did you pack by yourself? Were the suitcases with you
1: since you packed? Did anyone give you something to carry? No, they're going to ask what his bar mitzvah portion was. <laughs> That's right. So why, why are you coming here? Your family here? Where are you staying? <laughs> you guys, my mazel Tov is to... My girl, my literal girl, Edith Isadora Cohen, who this week turns one years old. And I'm oh! so excited for her. I know we've talked about this a lot, but I just like I cannot believe it's been a year. I cannot believe how amazing my life is with her in it and how great it's just been watching her grow. And I'm going to cry. She's never going to listen to this. So this is just <laughs> for everyone else.
0: Um, my mazel tov is is uh, this is this is belated. This is off brand, off topic. You're going to wonder why now. But it's what I'm feeling today. A mazel tov to Thomas Maypother, otherwise known by his middle name, Tom Cruise, for making Top Gun Maverick. I saw it a couple of weeks ago. Oh my God, the greatest movie of all time ever made by a man? Yes. It's a wonderful movie. The first one was great. This one's even better. I took Rebecca right before she went off to camp. She loved it. And it was a reminder of why the big screen is so great, why we should go see movies in person, even though I'm getting a little annoyed by all the ads, insisting that we go see them in person and telling us how great they are in person, the art form has to sell itself. But it does sell itself. And I think that, you know, I'm I'm the kind of guy, you know what kind of guy I am? I'm the kind of guy who goes to see movies by myself because it's air-conditioned. Pay- pay- paying for some of them. And some of them I pay for. See, if I pay 12 bucks and go to see four movies, I just see it as three bucks per movie. But <coughs> I'm paying for all of them. <laughs> but, you know, Cruz, he's an odd dude. He's a star. With all the good and the bad that comes with being a mega celebrity of of 40 years standing now but um America would be the poorer without without him and his work and I've just just loved this movie so uh, hats off to Tommy Maypother Amen Salah to that Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Butnik, and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team also includes Benader, Daron Ruskay, Tanya Singer, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please get our swag at bit.ly unortho shirt. Look at our episode art by Esther Wordiger. Listen to our theme music by Golem. They're online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Daniel Sherman at Temple Sinai in New Orleans. And we come to you from the soundproofed bat cave of Tablet Studios. Shalom yellow, friends <laughs> tl semicolon dr Mm -hmm. appeared in my life a few weeks maybe three months ago since then everyone i know has used it mark that's like older than my children TLDR. I didn't know it till three months ago, and now everyone's using it on me. It stands for Talmudic Law Derabanan.